Good morning. Uh, if I have not met you, my name is Joe Johnson. Uh, my wife and family and I go to this church. I'm also the RUF campus minister at Birmingham Southern. And um, love getting to do this. Happy Labor Day weekend to everybody. Um, we are finishing our series on the Psalms. Uh, and this is a very appropriate time to be in the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms are God's gift to his people that help us articulate the deepest longings of our soul. The whole range of human emotions. God gives us the words to articulate how we're feeling. Our ups and our downs, our anger and our sadness. And so they are a true gift to us. Songs that we get to sing, prayers that we get to pray, thoughts that we get to think. And they really are his songs that he wants his people to sing. And so the question we always ask is, well, what does God want us to sing about? What are the things he wants his people to meditate about and join together in song? And more often than not, God wants his people to sing about sadness. The number one uh, most common psalm in the entire Bible is lament, biblical sadness. And so it's strange to think, but maybe it's not so strange if you think about it for a little bit more, that God wants his people to sing songs about their sadness, about their sorrows, about their grief. That's the topic that he wants on our tongues. And that's actually really good news, especially now, since we actually do, and it's okay to admit this, we actually do have a lot to be sad about. And that sadness that he gives us in the Psalms actually leads us to Jesus in a very unique way. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, sadness. Um, it's from Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is a model lament, as theologians would call it, only six verses in total, and it goes through all the steps that a lament is supposed to. So it actually guides us in how to be sad and how to do it well. So Psalm 13, I'm going to start in verse 1. This is God's word. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me go before the Lord and ask for his help. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you again for this morning, and we thank you for your word uh, that is not superficial, but is very real. And it talks about things that may make us uncomfortable, but things we long and need uh, to think about. And help us, as your people, see Jesus more clearly this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's one thing in our culture that has led me to a great deal of encouragement as of late, Um, maybe the past 10 years, is a push towards vulnerability. Um, This can go, you know, wrong. We can take it too far. But but there has been a push towards vulnerability about being real with who we are. A push towards um, even thinking about the uh, ugly emotions in our life. And a lot of this has come from one woman named Brene Brown. If you've heard of her, uh, read her books or TED Talks. Uh, Brene Brown is a clinical psychologist, researcher, TED Talker, uh, book writer. And she talks about the epidemic of our culture of mental health, which is shame. And shame are those things that we believe about ourselves that make us hide from other people. And she says the answer to shame, the answer to this epidemic is actually vulnerability. 
being real about our struggles and our failures with other people and having that connection that actually brings a great deal of healing. And so because of, I think, her work, a lot of, um, of our culture now is pushing towards vulnerability. And I've seen it kind of trickle down in every part of our life, including the movies that my kids watch. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, movies were about heroes that maybe had, like, flawed pasts, but they were strong and capable and never had weakness. Uh, princesses were beautiful and perfect, but always needed to be rescued, which is a whole other topic of, uh, um, that we're not going to get into this morning. But the movies that my kids watch actually push them towards vulnerability and thinking about their complicated emotions. And it's wonderful. And the movie that does this the best is one of our favorite movies, Inside Out, which is a Pixar movie about a young girl named Riley. And Riley, um, 9 or 10 years old, I think, moves, has a family childhood move from her home that she loves to a place that she doesn't understand. And the movie takes place in her mind and characterizes the emotions that she has. So her fear has a character, her joy, her sadness, her disgust, all have these hilarious characters. And that plays out what she's going through by looking at these emotions. And in the movie, uh, two emotions get lost into the abyss. And it's the emotion of joy and the emotion of sadness. And the whole movie, all the characters are trying to bring the character joy back because Riley needs joy, right? She's in a hard situation, so the thing that she needs most is joy. But at the end of the movie, and spoiler, but it's been out for a while, the thing that she actually needs most is not joy, it's sadness. This character that no one knew what to do with. What's the point of sadness? Why is she around? She just makes us cry. What is this emotion? But in the end, this girl going through a really hard time did not need joy to be healthy, She actually needed to cry. She needed to be sad. She needed to mourn the loss of the things that she's lost in that move. To be healthy, she actually needed sadness. And look, this sermon is sort of flowing from um, what I have been thinking about this summer. And when I say this summer, I actually mean almost every day from March to now. That's what felt like summer, right? The things that we've lost... Uh, the things that we've just kind of gotten used to. I'm preaching to a bunch of people in masks. That's something that I never want to get used to. Um, we've lost a great deal of things. And there's still, even though this push towards vulnerability in our culture, there's still like a pressure in me that wants to be like, don't be sad, just think positively. Just kind of get past it. But what if sadness and mourning things is actually a healthy way to live? What if it's not a bad emotion? What if it's a godly emotion? I think that's what Psalm 13 calls us to consider. Because our emotions can go one of two ways. We can either ignore them, which I think is what a lot of the church does, ignore it. Or we can be run by them. And both those two things are wrong and unhealthy. But the Psalms give us a third way. To be emotional as God is emotional. To actually mirror his grief and his sorrow in our own hearts. And to be real about something like our sadness. So Psalm 13, as we walk through this, it's going to teach us how to be sad well, how to practice the art of sadness. And it does it in three steps. How do we be sad? We do three things. We complain, we ask, and we hope. We complain, we ask, and we hope. That's what the Psalms go through. And so uh, we're going to start, verse 1, with the complaint. And this is the complaint. This is David writing. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Upon my first reading of that, that kind of sounds psalmy, right? It just sort of sounds like the language of the Psalms. But if you actually look at the words and think about them, this is super offensive. This is pretty raw, right? 
And I don't know what your small group past has been, but I, every small group or prayer group I've ever been in, no one prays like this. And if someone were to walk into a prayer group and pray this, in a lot of anger and sadness, you would be tempted, at least I would be tempted, to like slowly back away from that prayer group. Or call a counselor or something, because this is, this is pretty dark. And yet, this is in the Bible. That God gives us these words. This is actually made to be sung together. And so as dark as this is, as sort of shocking as this language is, there's actually a great deal of encouragement. Just the fact that this is in the Bible. And the first of this encouragement is that this shows us that God assumes our sadness. And what I mean by that is that he knows it's there. Uh, C.S. Lewis um, says that uh, sadness is the great equalizer. It visits us all. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor on the other side of the world or present today. Sadness will come. Grief will come. Sorrow will come. It visits us all. And God's not surprised by it. He's not surprised that his people have an emotion that's disappointment in this life. Maybe even a feeling of disappointment with him. He assumes it's there. He knows it's there. But not just that. This is even better. The second great encouragement that this is even in the Bible is that it shows us that God understands that sadness. Doesn't just know that it's there, but he deeply understands it. Understands it better than we do. Derek Kidner, a commentator um, on, on the Psalms, says that the very presence of this type of lament, this type of language, and the abundance of these type laments in the Bible shows the depth of God's understanding of our grief. He knows it. He gets it. He grasps it better than we do. And so he gives us the language to articulate the thing that we're already feeling but don't know how to express. He gives us these words. And if you look at these words, exactly what he gives to us, they're very personal, aren't they? I mean, this is like addressing God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face? Will I be left alone to take counsel in my soul? How long will you exalt my enemies over me? I mean, this is, Christians can't pray like this. And yet, actually, God gives us these words to say to him. Why? Well, I think the answer is, and this is why these words are so, so, so good. Because when we come to God with raw complaint, we will never be disappointed with his answers. How long will he hide his face from us? The answer to that, he's never hid his face from us. He's always been with us. How long will he leave us alone? He has never left us alone. He has always been there. When you come complaining to God, you will never be disappointed by the answer. Because when we're real with our sadness, we will actually see that Jesus is there with us in our sadness. And that God is more sad about the things we're sorrowful over than us. He's more grieved about the sin in this world. He's more grieved about your pain than you are. And there's a great deal of hope in that. Uh, This summer, I read, um, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, and my students at Birmingham Southern get tired of me uh, talking about C.S. Lewis. And um, uh, one of the uh, parts of C.S. Lewis writing that I never got into is his fiction. I like nonfiction, but I've never really gotten into his fiction yet. I've never read Chronicles of Narnia. And so since I had an abundance of time on my hands, I read the Chronicles of Narnia. And I loved it. I loved his little uh, introduction to it, his dedication to it, to his daughter that said, you know, you're too old for fairy tales now, but one day you'll be old enough again to enjoy them. And that's kind of how I felt in my 30s reading these sort of fairy tales, and and I loved it. And one of my favorite parts came at the very beginning of the series, in The Magician's Nephew, sort of the creation of Narnia, this world that C.S. Lewis created, 
And the main character, Diggory, who's there, whose mother is dying in the real world, our world, but he's in Narnia, and he's looking at Aslan, this, this character that's depicting God, this powerful, mighty lion. And he's looking at him right in the face, feeling fear, but can't help but break into tears and say, Aslan, can't you do anything to save my mom? And then he saw something in the lion that shocked him. And in the lion's eyes were these great big tears. And I love the line. It was something like, the tears were so big that it made him think that Aslan cared more about his mom than he did. That he was sadder over her dying than he was. Right? Like, when we come with our sadness to Jesus, we will be shocked to find that he's grieving more than we are. And that he's with us in our sadness, breathing hope. What do you need to be sad about? And maybe a better way to ask that question is, what do you need to allow yourself to be sad about? We're grieving a lot right now. The world is not the way that it was, and and you sort of wonder how long is it going to be before it's normal again, if normal's coming. As a college campus minister, I'm not even allowed to go to my campus right now because of the virus, and that makes me really, really sad. There's a lot of injustice in this world that we all know about. And, 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 and me, as a middle-class white person, I've long ignored racial injustice. I've just sort of thrown it off, and now I'm grieving not only over the injustice, but grieving over my reaction to it. And then we grieve just the normal things that come of life that are horrible. Uh, cancer diagnoses, loss and death in the family. What are things that we need to allow ourselves really to complain about? And maybe in really graphic ways to Jesus himself, that we may find that he's with us. What do you need to be sad about? Secondly, we don't just get to complain. We also get to ask. And this comes in verse 3. This is the petition, as theologians would call it. And this is what David asks for. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I'm shaken. Again, this is David writing. He's an ancient Near Eastern king over God's people. And if I were David, I would have asked for something way more specific, right? Uh, What is David's biggest fear? What would he be most sad over? Well, he's king in Jerusalem and he's surrounded by his enemies. Superpowers sort of growing up all around him. And he's terrified for his kingdom to be conquered. And and so my, my prayer here as a king would be, hey, God, take care of the problem. Take care of my enemies. Take care of the situation. Take care of the circumstances. But that's not what David asks for. He does bring up his enemies, but look at what he actually asks for. Consider and answer me. Light up my eyes, lest all of these bad things happen. Consider and answer me, meaning remember me. Be with me. Remember your people. Remember your covenant. Remember your promises. And then light up my eyes. Attune my eyes and my heart to see your work. In other words, I think what David's asking here is like, God, I know you're doing something. I know you're at work. I just don't see any evidence of it. And so remember me, show me, and be present with me. I really think this is David simply asking, God, may you and your work and your kingdom be at the forefront of what I see in this world. Be with me in what's going on. David does not waste his time on band-aid prayers which I so often do, of God just kind of fix my circumstances. I truly believe that if the virus went away, all my problems would go away. But then I remember before the virus, I had a ton of problems, right? 
I believe sometimes that if I just had a little bit more money or a little bit bigger house or whatever that, whatever that desire is in my heart that all my problems would go away. But I think even if that were to happen, I think I would come up with way more problems. I truly believe that if just like I'm more successful or you know, fill in the blank, then my problems really would go away. But they won't. Because those aren't the deepest problems of my heart. The deepest problem of my heart is I don't believe God loves me. And that even if he did, that love would not be enough. The deepest problem of our heart is I don't believe Jesus is with me. And yet the petition here is to call upon God to be with his people, to remember his covenant. And to remind our hearts of those promises. That he's never left. Speaking of band-aids, my, um, my daughter loves band-aids. And um, uh, sometimes she gets band-aids because she really needs them. Falls off a bike and actually needs medical attention. Um, most of the time, she does not need them. Uh, most of the time, she like bites her lip a little bit and wants a Band-Aid, but there's no possible way to put a Band-Aid on her lip. Or the mysterious boo-boos where there's no redness, no bruising, no nothing. But she really needs a Band-Aid, right? And the Band-Aids have kind of become like stickers. They have princesses, Buzz Lightyear, all of those things. And I would always get so frustrated of, and you don't need a Band-Aid. Like, but that's not going to do anything. I don't want to go find the Band-Aids and go bring them. And my wife is better at this, but I've, I've realized that she's not actually asking for a Band-Aid, right? Like, what, she, what she's really asking for, as we're totally consumed with her younger brother, who's always getting into trouble and always running off, is that she actually wants my full attention, and she actually wants me to stop for a second and, and, and get the Band-Aid and actually bend down and be with her and look at the boo-boo and say, I'm so sorry, I'm sure that hurts. She just wants me there. She wants her dad there, his presence and his ability to empathize. Isn't that actually what we want from God? To find that he's present in our sadness and to find him more beautiful because of that? That's what David asked for here. But far too often, our prayers are just fix this. Fix my circumstance. Fix the thing I'm worried about. But really, we need to have the presence of Jesus on our hearts and in our minds. To find him more beautiful even in the midst of the storm. To find him more beautiful because of the storm. What are our prayers? What are we really asking for in our prayers? Are we asking for the right thing? But then lastly, we are to hope. We're to complain. Complain well, complain our hearts out. We were to ask for the right thing. But then lastly, we were to hope. These are the last two verses here where the psalmist ends, and he ends like this. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I have problems. Sometimes I have a problem with this language here. Because at first reading, it feels like it's just ending on a positive note, right? Kind of that southern thing where you complain for an hour, but then in the end, you just kind of say like, but everything's fine. I'm fine. And so it kind of seems like a cheap ending, but, but it's really not. The psalmist has complained away, and he's asked for God to be present, and then he ends with hope that you can only find in the Psalms. Every commentary that I read on this passage brings this quote up. And it's a quote by Martin Luther, where he talks about the emotion that you experience in the Psalms sometimes can be summarized by saying, hope despairs, but despair hopes. 
And what he's getting at there is that in the Psalms, you so often feel this despair, this like giving up, that it almost feels like David is about to throw in the towel. And you kind of relate to that, right? You look at the world and the brokenness in it, and you don't know what to do. And then you look at your own heart, and you see even more brokenness, and you don't know what to do. And despair is everywhere. But then you realize, you know, despair never prays. Only hope prays. And the psalmist has this beautiful duality to it of despairing in the world, yet hoping in something greater. And so in these verses, I do believe what David is saying is, I despair in myself, but I hope in something greater. Look at the language that he's using. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's David giving up on himself to be able to fix anything around him, but finding his hope in the God who has always loved his people and has never left. He looks to his past of God's faithfulness to assure himself of God's faithfulness in his future. And isn't that what we do as Christians? We look to the cross, to the one who took our sin and shame upon himself, to remember that that same God is present with us today. That that same love is still with us. That that same, that same Savior is still united to us. Because here's what true sadness does. Biblical, good sadness. It always leads us to Jesus. It leads us to the one that Isaiah says, a man of sorrow is well acquainted with grief. It leads us to the one who, who wept over his friend dying minutes before he raises him to life again. So crushed, so sad at the, at, at, the, at the hurt and the grief of his sisters and even the loss of his friend. He wept. And it points us to the God who Revelation 21 says will wipe away all of our tears. That the first order of business in heaven for God is to wipe our tears away. Like a father kneeling down, wiping tears of his son or daughter saying that everything is going to be right. Everything has been made right. That actually sadness helps us experience Jesus in a very unique way and maybe a way we've never done it before. That he's sad with us and yet speaking words of hope. One more C.S. Lewis reference before I close. One of the hardest books C.S. Lewis um, wrote, that, that the hardest book to read that he wrote is uh, called A Grief Observed. And not hard because it's very long or complicated. It's just him wrestling with the death of his wife and uh, wrestling with the goodness of God and the love of God and the fairness of God and wrestling with faith and doubt. And it's really, it's, it's an amazing book. It's just really hard uh, to get through. And at the end of the book, the way he ends it is he talks about this hypothetical question of would his wife come back? If she were given the choice, would she come back? And, and if he were given the ability, would he bring her back? And he ends the book by saying, no, she wouldn't come back. I mean, she's with glory. She's with Jesus, right? She has a body that's now unridden with cancer. And it would be unfair for her to come back. And that's how he ends the book. And there's a great deal of hope in that. And I think about that actually pretty often. Um, and I went, not correcting C.S. Lewis at all, but, but it, it leads me to, to push the point even further. That, that of course, it would... It would be harmful to her to come back. She would be further away from Jesus. 
But, but maybe the hope of C.S. Lewis is not in just getting his wife back and being less sad. Maybe the hope of C.S. Lewis was to find Jesus was with him in that sadness and to find Jesus more beautiful. To find that the gospel is even enough with the loss of his wife. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be sad over things and just be happy because Jesus loves us. I actually think Psalm 13 is saying you have permission to be sad because the gospel is true. How can we be a community that's good at being sad? With one another, with crying tears with one another, with praying together, with being comfortable and sitting in the uncomfortable. I think Psalm 13 gives us the language to do that. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. And thank you for your word that talks about uncomfortable topics. Lord, there is a lot to be sad over. There's a lot to mourn over. But give us hopeful lament. Give us honest prayers. Give us good tears. And give us rest in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.